Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it's Albert. We're in a little bit of a quiet period as far as NFL activity goes, but we've got a loaded show for you this week. We've got takeaways on Carson Wentz, on the Texans, on Sam Darnold, and on the free agent market. We've got a great guest, a former NFL executive, to come in and preview the offseason for us. Fabs is in for his weekly DraftKings segment, and we get to all your questions in the six-pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. We're a week into the NFL offseason. Normally, we'd be a week or two away from the Indianapolis Scouting Combine. That's a different year. It's a different offseason. The Combine's canceled. But we're here for you at the Albert Breer Show. we got a great, great program coming for you today. Our special guest is a guy I go back with almost as far as anybody in my 15 years covering the NFL. He'll be able to give us great insight into what that offseason is going to look like from the executive suite. He is a former NFL executive that I'm sure you'll be familiar with. Michael Fabiano is in to continue to wrap up the 2020 fantasy season, look forward a little bit to the 2021 fantasy season. And of course, we're going to get to your questions in a six pack, but we start with the takeaways. And my first takeaway here in this sort of abyss of the NFL offseason the NFL is showing us what it thinks of Carson Wentz. The NFL is showing us very clearly what it thinks of where Carson Wentz is as a player. And, you know, I I think if you look at the evolution of this and how it's played out over the last two weeks, there's no question that the NFL is sending a message very strongly to the Eagles on what they think of their former franchise quarterback. If you want to rewind back to before the Super Bowl, um, after the Matthew Stafford trade, in in the immediate aftermath of the Matthew Stafford trade, the Eagles' asking price for Carson Wentz was established and a Matthew Stafford type of return. That would be two first-round picks, a third-round pick. Of course, there was the contract going back um, to the Lions. Um, that was Jared Goff's contract, so that was sort of an NBA-style salary dump, you know, slash a player that the Lions think can be okay for them at that position. Uh, but the bottom line is that the asking price was sky high. And the effect that that had in the market, I think, was the first sign of what the rest of the NFL thought of Carson Wentz. There were teams that looked at that and said, we can't eat. I mean, like, that is so far away from what we would be willing to give up for Carson Wentz. We're out. We don't even know how to counter that. Okay, so then the price went down. The Eagles hoped to get a one plus something else. They couldn't get that. Then the price went down. The Eagles hoped they can get a first-round pick. And now we're in a spot where the two teams that are involved, most involved in this, are the Indianapolis Colts and the Chicago Bears. Well, those two teams have a ton of background with Carson Wentz. Indianapolis has three guys in Frank Reich, uh, Mike Groh, and Press Taylor that were at the coordinator level 
with Carson Wentz in Philadelphia. The Chicago Bears have the position coach that Carson Wentz had his first two years in the league and John D. Filippo as their pass game coordinator. If either of those teams felt so strongly about Carson Wentz that they were willing to sink a first-round pick or a first-round pick and something else into acquiring him, the deal will be done by now. The fact that it's not done by now tells you how tepid their interest is, and that's sending a message to the rest of the NFL and basically confirming what they already thought and what they saw in the 2020 tape. And so it's a tough spot for the Eagles to be in now. I will say this, their general manager, Howie Roseman, is one of the best when it comes to creatively getting a return for his team, when it comes to deal-making, when it comes to thinking outside the box. So I still wouldn't rule out like the Eagles getting a quality return and doing it in a creative way. Um, but I think that the NFL sort of spoken on Carson Wentz. And that's not to say he's not fixable. But the tape was really bad. There's questions about his flashes. And is it sort of like Robert Griffin's flashes eight years ago where – it was there, and it was gamed up for a while, but what he was doing wasn't sustainable, and then he couldn't evolve. Blake Bortles was a little bit that way, too, where he had a little blip up, and you saw him, and you think, okay, like maybe there's something here, and then, then they never got there. I just think that that's how a lot of the league is looking at Carson Wentz right now, and there's still talent there, so you're willing to take a flyer on him, but are you willing to truly invest in him? Investing him would be mean, mean being willing to take on the contract, which got $40 million guaranteed over the next two years, a total of 54 over the next two, and sinking high-end draft capital into him. Again, if somebody was willing to do that, the deal would be done by now. The fact that it's not tells us what we need to know. Uh, takeaway number two, the T- Houston Texans need one thing over anything else right now, and that's strong leadership. And I think Nick Casario can be that guy. But I just look at some of the moves they're making here, and it's hard for me to look at it and not think to myself, like, I wouldn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that. I like, like there's just there's so much common sense stuff that you're seeing that just comes down to simple communication between people and a simple a simple reading of the room, right? Like so they so Jamie Roots, their team president, is gone. Why is he gone? He's gone because of the way the general manager search went. Because he felt like he was shut, he, he, like like he was almost hoodwinked, and there were a lot of people in that building that felt that way. That the the owner and Jack Easterby ran an underround, that the search firm was brought in, that there were quality names that they were sorting through, and then all of a sudden, boom, it goes in another direction. And that, by the way, is also what pissed off your franchise quarterback. So, um, the communication in the building was bad enough where. You know, people feel like they got hoodwinked in the Nick Casario hire. And again, I think the world of Nick Casario, that's like his his involvement of this is it's separate, right? Like, so there's that. And then, you know, I think Jack Easterby hiring Dylan Thompson, which was something that sort of flew under the radar as the director of team development. That's another one where it's just read the room, right? Like, it's clear that people in the organization right now don't trust Jack. And I'm not saying Jack's a bad guy, but it's right that that's where it is right now. And so if you're going to bring in a guy to sort of be in charge of the health of the locker room, which is what somebody in that position is, and the guy is Jack's protege, um, and again, like, people in Detroit love Dylan Thompson, right? Like, like the players in that locker room love Dylan Thompson, but you're putting him in a position to succeed, because, to, to fail, because people are going to look at him and say, well, this is just an agent of Jack. And so I just think so much of this stuff is so common sense, and that's what's like really difficult about it. And so I think as much as anything else, 
I like there needs to be like, like like somebody needs to take that organization by the throat and create direction and I think that it has to be Nick 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 Casario because at the very least he's the one guy you know he's got power he doesn't have history that goes back over the last year so you don't need to wonder about what side he was taking here or there um, he needs to get people on board and this is about building relationships and that's what where this starts for him and you know I think that kind of finding a way to bring the building back together will be the first step. And then the second step has to be picking up the horn and finding a way to have a conversation with Deshaun Watson and finding a way to get Deshaun Watson back on board. Um, We've talked about this a lot, but you know, I just, you're one of the few teams in the NFL that has a quarterback who can run with Patrick Mahomes. I'm not saying he's better than Patrick Mahomes, but a quarterback who can run with Patrick Mahomes and a quarterback that's going to give you a chance to compete with Patrick Mahomes over the next 10 years. And the reason there's so much, I think, quarterback upheaval across the NFL right now is because teams are looking at Mahomes and saying, how are we going to compete with that over the next 10 years? You've got one of those guys. Hang on to him. Find a way. Do whatever it takes. And so um, the, the the absolute dumpster fire that the Texans have been over the last few months, uh, look, like you can see why Watson would want out. I think the first step to keeping Watson, like you want to have that conversation with him, but the first step is showing him that what's happened over the last six or seven months, the reasons for, for, for Watson being the reason, the reasons for Watson being upset in the first place, those are being taken care of. And you do that by rebuilding the relationships and reunifying the building. Takeaway number three, I think Sam Darnold, is going to be the next quarterback off the board after Carson Wentz. Now, the background here, after the Matthew Stafford trade, the week after, four teams called the Jets. The Jets basically told every one of them, we're still going through our process, we're still evaluating, get back to us. After that, more teams called. There is interest in Sam Darnold. There's very real interest in Sam Darnold. And I think the fact that this wasn't a we're hanging up on you um, sort of thing tells you that Joe Douglas, the general manager who's been there now, and Robert Sala, the head coach, are considering all their options at that position. And I think because they aren't completely sold on Sam Darnold, well, wouldn't that make it less likely they'd be willing to pick up a $25 million or $20, $25 million fifth-year option when it gets to May? And if you're not picking up that option, well then how strongly do you feel about him? And now you're talking about, okay, now we're looking at potentially taking a quarterback with the second pick. So I can tell you where they are right now, and that is uh, the coaches are evaluating the draft quarterbacks, and that's obviously a big part of this picture. Like how comfortable do you feel with Justin Fields or Zach Wilson or Trey Lance instead of Sam Darnold? So that's going to be a big part of it. But if you do feel like you're in a good spot there, the great thing about where the Jets are they can basically trade Sam Darnold, get a big return for him now, and remain in the Deshaun Watson running while knowing we're going to be able to get our quarterback of the future with the second pick. And that's a fantastic position to be in. And so, hey, look, it sucks for the Jets. They didn't wind up with Trevor Lawrence out of this whole deal in the year they had last year and everything else. But right now, I, I, I don't think they're in a bad position. I mean, I think they've got a shot to look at trading Sam Darnold, potentially getting a return for him, or you stick with Sam Darnold, and either way, you can remain in the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes for the next two months just in case he becomes available because you, with the second and 23rd picks and a high second-round pick and then an extra first-round pick next year, 
would be in prime would be one of the teams that would have the capital to go and get that done. Takeaway number four, um, I and this is something we're going to get into with our guest. I think there are going to be a lot of bargains to be had in the free agent market. We've seen the the start of this this week. JJ Watt gets released. KK Short gets released. Um, and I, I I think you know because of the cap being what it is, we're going to see a bloodletting of veterans and. How bad that is, I think, is going to ride on what happens with the salary cap. We don't know where they're at with that right now, and it's probably going to be at least a couple more weeks but until we get clarity on that. Probably a lot of that's going to ride. Well, I know a lot of that's going to ride on whether or not they get the television deals done. But I don't think there's any question that because the cap isn't going to go up the same way people expected it to a year ago, 18 months ago, when a lot of these contracts were done and structured for the cap to go up in 2021, we are going to have a lot of veteran players that are going to be on the street in addition to the unrestricted free agents who will be out there starting on March 18th. And that means you're going to have some guys sliding through the cracks and I think there's going to be a lot of good deals to be had. And I, I think back to when the fl- the cap was flat the last time. That was from 2011 to 2013. And there was a year in there where, for one reason or another, corners weren't getting paid. And if you look at the market that year where you'd already had corners making, I think, $9, $10 million a year, um, you had... Like I think the top guys in the market were getting four or five. Why was that? Well, it was because the cap was flat. There wasn't a lot of money to be to be had out there for anyone. And so what did you see? Well, Dominique Rogers Cromartie did a one-year deal with the Broncos. Akib Talib did a one-year deal with the Patriots. And then those guys, you know, wound up playing really well in those one-year deals and they got paid the next year. So I think you're gonna see a lot of that. And I think that because of this, there's going to be a lot of good bargains out there for teams waiting um, to add to their roster. So if you're a team like the Jets, the Jags, the Patriots that has a lot of cap room, if you're smart about it and you don't and you maybe are a little like you at least resist the urge to go out on day one of free agency and make a splash. I still think those day one guys are going to get paid. There could be a lot of nice bargains out there for you where you could walk or walk away with four or five or six like really quality players um, that'll be immediately useful for you in 2021. Finally, takeaway number five, uh, you know, the Urban Meyer situation in Jacksonville and everything that happened with Chris Doyle. Um, for those who don't, who, who didn't follow it, Chris Doyle, uh, there was some pretty serious stuff that he was accused of at, at Iowa. Um, they wound up, you know, basically coming to an agreement. He was paid over a million dollars to walk away from that job that he had had for about 20 years. There were accusations that he had treated black players different than white players. And I'm not here. I, I, I don't know how guilty or not guilty he was of any of that. But I do know there were a ton of accusations out there. And there were guys who went on the record. And, like, I'm not here to tell you that the guy's career should be over. What I am here to tell you is that Urban Meyer has to be self-aware enough to know he's not the guy who can make that hire. But there are certain coaches in the NFL who would be able to make that sort of hire. And Urban Meyer's not one of them. And I, I always think about this, right? Like, so, like, everybody's got, like, sort of, I feel like most people have something, you know, some sort of skeleton in their closet. And because of that, they can't do things that are related to it, right? Like, so, for example, like, Bill Belichick after Spygate couldn't get caught doing anything nefarious again like like you can't you have to be by the book and that's why deflate gate the league came down so hard on him right 
like Pete Carroll, like when when he left USC, if he were ever to go back to college coaching, he couldn't be caught so much as ha- like having like after the Reggie Bush thing, um, and this is even before he left college, he couldn't be caught so much as having lunch with a recruit, right? So there are certain things where you have to be aware of your own history and understand like okay, like this is something I can't do. With Urban Meyer, the reason he wound up out at Ohio State, he hired. Um, you know, he hired Zach Smith all those years ago, and that wound up where it wound up. There were the domestic violence um, accusations, and I mean, look, like there were signs that, like going back that like that that hire was a shaky one to begin with. And I, the way I look at this is like, so no matter what happened in that situation, Urban had to know, like, like my hiring practices have to be. Have to be squeaky clean. Like I have to be hiring guys that don't have a lot, don't have stuff in their past, that's gonna sort of create these sort of situations for me again. And that's why I think, like, even if Chris Doyle was worthy of a second chance, and again, I don't know whether he is or not. Like Urban's got to know enough to know he can't be the guy to make that hire. And I do think that one of the guys he hired is going to help him with that sort of thing going forward. That's Ryan Stamper. It sort of flew under the radar that as a hire was made official this week, he was the director of player development, wound up getting an associate athletic director title at Ohio State. He's the director of player assessment in Jacksonville. And I think he's going to, he's going to be the guy, like, and I can tell you this knowing some people around this situation, he's going to be the guy that's going to create some of these guardrails for Urban Meyer he just sort of wished that he could have put up those guardrails before. Um, and before we get to our special guest, I want to just, you know, say, um, you know, my best and, and our thoughts are with uh, the family of Vincent Jackson, like a really, um, a really tragic case, um, you know, some weird circumstances around it. But, uh, you know, when I started covering the league in 2005, Vincent Jackson was still a young player. And, uh, you know, I can sort of remember like how, he was, you know, sort of at the front end of these supersized receivers, and uh, he was like 6'5", 240 coming out of North, North Colorado, Northern Colorado. And you know, after his success, you saw other guys start to succeed that like looked that way, that looked almost like tight ends. So you're, you're Brandon Marshalls, your 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 Calvin Johnsons, and so he was sort of a forerunner in that way. And, um, you know, certainly from a business standpoint, the stand he took after the lockout with the Chargers, um, you guys can look up the details on that. He made a difference for other players that way, too. So um, all of our best to Vincent Jackson, his family, his loved ones, and we will get to our special guest right after this. All right, we're gonna have one of my favorite people, and now me and this guy go back a, a long time, Scott. We go, we go uh, back to I think over a decade, and back to when I was covering the Patriots, and I was just you know kind of a little punk who didn't know anything. So uh, you knew a lot, Bert. Come on, come on. <laughs> he it is. is the, it's over a decade, though. I, I know. No, it is. It is. It's like 2005, 2006, and I, there's a lot of bad math out there for us, Scott. If we want to add up how many years this, what we are from this or that. Uh, he's Scott Pioli, a former uh, Falcons executive, uh, ex-Patriots executive, three-time Super Bowl champion, five-time executive of the year, and he is now an analyst for uh, for CBS Sports and uh, NFL Network. Uh, appreciate you coming out, Scott. 
Uh, Albert, thanks so much for having me. Great to be on with you. Gosh, we've been trying to get this planned and our schedules haven't met up, but I'm so thankful to be with you. Truly absolutely. Absolutely. It. Always great to always great to catch up with you, whether it's on or offline. So uh, the reason I want to have you on, I, and there are a few things that, that, that I want to hit here with you because we got such a kind of exciting offseason coming, I think, at the NFL. Um, you know, but, but, but uh, like, I wanted to try to like, for our listeners, be able to conceptualize the challenges that are ahead for all the general managers in the NFL now. And, um, you know, I guess where it would start Scott this off season would be with the salary cap and, you know, the revenue shortfall as a result of COVID, um, is going to impact the salary cap. We don't know where it's going to fall. Um, you know, depending on whether the television deals get done and all of that, you know, we'll see. But certainly, I, I think you know we're in a spot where most teams didn't expect to be a year for a year ago. Um, right. You know, and so like I, I guess that's sort of my jumping off point with you, Scott. Is like, what sorts of discussions do you think are happening in these organizations now? Where you know, you look at the Saints, you look at the Eagles, teams that had kind of. I guess push some of their cap charges back, and we're expecting to see you know a jump in the salary cap in the new CBA, and it's not there for them. Um, if you could just to kind of kick things off here, just take us inside what that's like and what those discussion, what what sorts of discussions are happening, and what you think that you know we'll be talking about two three weeks from now as far as the impact of of of, of the of the revenue shortfall and where the where the salary cap's going to be. Yeah, Bert, I think the. The, the first part is there's probably a lot of uncomfortable conversations going on in organizations because really for the most part, I and mean, if you look at the history of the salary gap, I, I was very fortunate to be, uh, came into the league before the, the first salary cap started. And, um, you know, in those early years, the salary cap was not only low, but the growth of the salary cap from year to year was not that big, you know, from a percentage standpoint. So you really had to manage the salary cap. And, and I've said this to a number of people. I remember having the conversation with, with, with Thomas Dimitrov a couple of years ago, you know, when I got to the Falcons. It's, it's really no longer salary cap management isn't that difficult a thing because from year to year, there has been this consistent, constant, large incremental growth of revenue that has really impacted the cap. So really, unless you were real, unless you were, you know, I don't know, borderline negligent in terms of how you structured salaries and contracts and did things, you really could, you, you had to do a lot of things wrong in order to end up in salary cap jail. And right now those conversations are happening because everyone, you know, it's just like our country. There's been, we've all lived through such good times there's this entire generation of new general manager and people that have entered the game that really haven't had to work hard to manage it. Um, they just react, you know, they, they've built these big contracts that grow and they make a couple of tough decisions a year. Yeah, but that's part of it. But now this is going to be a much bigger dis discussion, Bert, right? Because every contract grows year by year. Mm -hmm. So even the fact if the salary cap were to be flat this year, the you know the the net effect was going to be making it a tighter cap, but now we're going to go backwards. It looks like that. That's what yeah. the word on the street is. That's what it looks like. So it's going to. There's a lot of uncomfortable decisions that are going to have to be made by by head coaches and general managers because it's the the, the space just isn't there. And unfortunately, what's going to have to happen is there's going to be good players that are cut. 
Um, there's going to be, I think, uh, it, I don't like to use the word market correction because, you know, I, I've never felt that players are overpaid, but there's going to be a overall market correction. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be tough for everyone, Bert. There's, there's, there's hard times coming for a lot of folks. Do you, what, like, so what were those discussions? Like when you guys did have those discussions, like, like what are those like? Is it like a position coach, like trying to try, trying to fight to have a guy stay on the roster because he thinks he really needs him. Is it like a scout who maybe helped bring the guy into the building advocating for him? Like what's like, how are those discussions going right now? Uh, most organizations that I was with, you know, there's, there's usually the, the top tier, the, the, the decision-making process, right? It's kind of like a, yeah. a triangle and, and it gets to the top and the two people that usually make those final decisions are the head coach and the general manager, the head coach and the vice president of player personnel, which is my title in new England, but there is input, but you know, it, it's like everything else. You listen to people. You also have your own opinion. And then the two top decision makers are top three decision. Just make the final decision. There's not really uh, I don't know if I, I know I haven't been in an organization where scouts start having opinions as to who you keep on the roster, because once you have players, the, the scouts' greater involvement is when you're acquiring players, whether it's through the draft, through free agency, and trades, and you're you're relying on their opinions. Once the player is yours and in the building, it really comes down to the people. And yes, I mean the the, the position coach has an opinion. You ask for their end of season evaluation on the player. Are they ascending or are they descending? Have they plateaued? You know, you also meet with the trainer. Um, you meet with the strength and conditioning coach or player performance, as they call it. You want input from all those people because you have to, again, that's any personnel decision that you make. It's just like when you prepare for the draft, you take in all this information from the people that know and touch things that you don't necessarily know, but you know how to make decisions based on that information and you let them weigh in and th then you ultimately make a decision. And you also involve, you know, the, the salary cap people need to give you information they certain you know in most organizations those folks don't make the decisions though do you remember one that was particularly hard for you like where god you know i really wish we could hold on to the guy and i'm sure there I, were a uh, bunch but is there oh, one there's, that a, sticks I, out? there's a long list for i mean, yeah. I mean it, it's it's uh, you know one i mean i remember how heartbroken we were when when we had to move on from ty law yeah you know when we had to move on from lawyer malloy Willie yeah, McGinnis. lawyer was the one I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah, Willie McGinnis. I mean, there's a long list, and Joe Andruzzi. Those things, those, those, that broke mine and Bill's heart. You know, we those they were players that we we not only respected as players, more importantly, we loved those guys as people and as and for what they gave to the program. And it's um, I could go through a long list. We could sit here and then there's other players that you go through, you know, watching the end come for players like Troy Brown and Anthony Pleasant. And then, you know, other decisions in other places that I, that I was at, it's um, that part's never easy, right? Because, and, and people try to, you know, Bert, one of the tough things I know that I've heard over the years is, um, you know, people try to justify the emotional part or the human side of it. And it was something that I never really bought into this. Well, you know, this isn't personal, it's business. And, and I got to tell you, I've never subscribed to that line because to me, a player's personal business is extremely personal. And you have to make a business decision about their personal business and your own personal business. And 
when those things affected families, you know, it didn't just affect the player. It affected their family, their livelihood. Um, those things are, are, they're tough, man. Well, it could and, be a guy's dream dying, basically, right? Yeah, like he's exactly. dreamed to get to that level forever, and his dream's dying, right? Exactly. And, yeah. and those things aren't easy, man. It, it's um, So to me, that's why I always felt people would, would kind of isolate or compartmentalize things. I've heard so many people and watched so many people, quite honestly, do it, say, hey, I'm sorry, man. This isn't personal business. As, you know, they wipe their hands and they walk away, and they say, you got to go, or you've been traded, or, you know, your contract expired. Good luck. Um, you know, I'm, I'm too much now I could do, I can do business, but I also believe that you can do it with a heart and do it with empathy and, um, and talk about it. It's, it's interesting, you know, um, Ross Tucker and I was, I was on, on his podcast the other day and he and I were kind of talking about that before we got on and we talked about it a little bit. It's, um, I think if any one of us that gets in this, that gets into a coaching or front office position and that becomes easy for you. I think you need to step away, take a sabbatical and reevaluate your humanity. Right. Right. And, and I'd imagine like, you know, you probably have a way that you want to do it. Right. Like you, like, and I, and I assume like, no matter what, like there are going to be guys that are going to leave pissed off. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I've been so, there. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like no matter what, like, like I'm sure like there are, there might've been some F bombs dropped on the way out, that sort of thing. But well, I, I remember I was the Turk in Cleveland and you know, I was, so I was, I was the slappy that brought the guy to Bill and there was this one player, I'm not going to mention his name, but we walked up the stairs and we got to the landing and I went to open the door and he kind of lost it. And I thought he was going to throw me over the stairwell. And uh, it was like, it, it, it was really, there, yeah, there's some, because again, this is. So you had to like talk he, him through the door. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> he, he, he was, uh, it, it was, it was odd. And, and, but, but again, that's the thing. This isn't just business. This is people's mm -hmm. personal business. And, um, and there's a lot wrapped up in it because and people say, wow, they get paid a lot of money. And yeah. And they sacrifice a lot to get paid a lot of money. So it's, it's very personal. Okay. So the flip side of this, and I, I think this is going to be an interesting kind of piece of this is that there are probably going to be more good players on the, on the street now because of this than there normally are. And, you know, it was interesting because somebody asked me in a, you know, it was a mailbag question a couple of weeks ago that I answered on like what the Patriots are going to do. And I sort of said, well, you know, like one thing that I was sort of thinking about was winding the clock back to 2001 and how good the Patriots were at the start at like sort of finding, finding guys like in, in the middle class. And I feel like that sort of like art has disappeared to some degree in the NFL because of, again, like you said, the rising cap, more guys can get taken care of beforehand. So they never make it to the market and all of that different stuff. I feel like maybe like that opportunity would be there for a team like new England that has cap space this year. And so I did want to ask you about that too, because like sort of the opportunity that might be there for teams to go and find guys that, 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 that might be bargains and, you know, maybe even taking it back 20 years to what you guys did that year, because that, I mean, that free agent class, Scott, I, like, I, I don't think it's, I don't think I'm talking out of school to say, like, it was a, a pretty good foundation piece for what you guys built there. Oh, Bert, it was, the foundation was, the, again, I, I remember that like it was yesterday. The foundation was the fact that we had some good players on the roster, again, Bruski, yeah. Willie McGinnis, Ty Law, Lawyer Malloy, you know, Drew Bledsoe. There were there were a couple of good players there. 
And then we were able to supplement it. That year we signed, and I remember the numbers exactly, we signed 23 players as free agents. 17 of them ended up making the roster. And we spent a total of $2.8 million in signing bonus <laughs> to get the, all of those players. I, I mean, I can't make it up. We signed Larry Izzo, Mark Edwards, Mike Rabel, Roman Pfeiffer, Anthony Pleasant. And we kept rolling these guys, Brian Cox. And Charles Johnson, wide receiver, Antoine Smith. And and a part of it was, you know, here's here's what I, you know, having had a background in being the head of personnel was, you know, I knew exactly what Bill was looking for. We knew exactly what Bill was looking for, therefore. And having had a background in pro personnel, we knew the league inside and out. You know, having been the, the pro director at the Jets. And, and so we knew what we were looking for and we knew what we could find and we knew kind of what we were trying to fit. And so to me, having cap money, cap space or cash or having all that is wonderful. But the bottom line is you have to scout well, you have to evaluate well, and you have to bring in the right players for your team and for your head coach and for your coaching staff. And, and that's what that you know, comes down to. And there, there was this really cool confluence of, uh, of trust that we all knew what we were looking for and we went out and got it and it became a good team. And, and we, um, so free agency can be used, but he, here's the thing, Bert, I, I want to go back to something you just said too, is that there's going to be a lot of good players out there. And, and here's what's, I think an interesting part when, I, when we go back to those early Patriot teams and even my couple of years at the Jets, we did a very good job of making sure, and it was a philosophical thing. This wasn't me. This was mm -hmm. us. This was, we were firm believers that we did not get caught up in, you have to build your team through the draft. You have to build your team through free agents. You have to build your team a certain way. There's multiple vehicles that you can use to build a roster. And that is the draft. That is unrestricted free agency. It's restricted free agency. It's street free agency. It's trades. It's the waiver wire. And if you go back and you look at those teams and how we constructed those teams, we used every vehicle, as I call it, vehicle of player acquisition that was available to us and added players through those ways. But what happens now, it's interesting because the draft has become this cottage industry, right? Free agency has become a thing. Okay, who are the hot free agents? Who's going to be the guy? Yeah. They've got classes and tiers and money and all, all this stuff where if you allow the peer pressure on the outside or the media pressure from the outside, to and which really is your fan base and which therefore impacts your owner and your organization, if you allow that to get in your head and force you to make decisions and trade away draft picks to move up and get one person because you think you're one player away or to spend so much money on one free agent, you're not showing enough respect for what player acquisition is. And that's what scouting is. And that's what that's what this is about. So inevitably, I, I, this is long-winded. I apologize for this, but you brought up a brilliant point, Bert. You mentioned, you know, free agency and and all these players are good, that are going to be available. You know what's going to happen? After June 1, there's going to be a bunch of good players available because mm -hmm. of this cap constraints. And then at the 53-man, remember, because the salary cap shrinks at that point in time, too, because you're not only counting the top 51, you count the 53 plus your 10 practice squad players. So there's this additional acceleration of money that happens at the final 53 cut. And every single year, Go look it up. 
every year there's players that are released June 1 at the final cuts that are going to be good players that are available that are going to help the football team win. So how did you guys get good at that? Like, like is it is it as simple as like like is it as simple as on that like the second wave of free agency, which I think is like, I mean, outside of like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, like outside of like a Dalius Thomas, like you guys were most, like you guys majored in like the second wave of free agency in your time in New England. Um, you know, I, I think in Kansas City for the most part, you guys didn't make huge splashes. You didn't make the day one splashes in free agency as much. Well, in um, Kansas City, what we did was we re-signed our own players and extended, right. you know, and yeah. and that's that's another. I'm interrupting. And I apologize, but to me, that's a key in free agency too. No one should know your own players better than you. And so when we extended Tom Bahali, Jamal Charles, you know, players that were good young players that I didn't draft, that Carl Peterson and his staff had drafted, but they were on the roster. You know, um, Brandon Flowers. Derek Johnson, none of those guys had made Pro Bowls, but we resigned them and extended them before that time because you just have to, you know, you have to know your team better than other people. Right, right. So, and, and that's what's going to be so interesting about it to me is like some of these guys who slip through the cracks, it's like you always have to ask that question, I guess, which is like, well, and, I, and I've had a lot of smart personnel people say this to me. Well, why, why did the other team let him go? Why didn't the other team resign him? It's always a question. You know, now I think you're going to have like logical answers to that, right? Which is they couldn't afford to keep them, right? So like maybe like some of the teams again, like you know Philly or New Orleans that figure to be way over, you can look at their players and you can say, well, there's a very logical reason why they let those guys go. But but here's the other thing I'll say. So sometimes that's a very easy answer and it's a dismissive answer when people say, well, why did the other team let them go? Well, maybe the other team let them go because it was a coaching change and that player doesn't skill set doesn't yeah. fit in that system and those are the kind of things albert that we prayed upon p-r-e-y you know prayed upon <laughs> that, yeah. that we were we and that's the key and why there's i think there's so many free agent mistakes is just because a player is good in one system and one culture doesn't mean that the player is going to be good in every other system. Right. And when I say system, I mean, you know, offensive and or de defensive philosophy, but also from a culture. Not every coaching culture is the same, right? Pete Carroll is incredibly successful and does an unbelievable job, but their culture is different than Bill Belichick's is. Neither one is better. Neither one is worse. Neither one is right. Neither one is wrong. It works for those people. So if you take a player that comes from a different culture and isn't going to understand yours, and Bert, you and I have to, I've talked about this, you know, off the record yeah. a million times. That was one of the important things with the with with the Patriots was finding players that you knew could could live in the culture that that well, Bill wanted his players to be in, and what that was was that they put football above everything else the one thing i just the one name that just popped in my head when you were going through that was wes and and how wes was with miami and sabin and did a great job play, and you guys had a front row seat I, he tore you guys up in one of the games i think in 06 yeah, yeah, right he did <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and 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 but then but then nick goes to alabama after the 06 season and now all of a sudden you have Cam Cameron coming in, who I believe was with San Diego when they cut Wes, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. now all of a sudden it's like, all right, like, well, if he's not a good fit there and people are going to be asking these questions, well, we know why. And you guys had the connection to Nick, which I'm sure helped too, right? And boom, and, and we like, had there to it face is. the guy, right? And again, remember, we had been 
we had been in the AFC East for a lot of years too, because prior to the Patriots time it was three years in, in, you know, not that West was there when we were with the jets, but here, but here's, this is, this is a great example, Bert. I'm glad you're bringing this up because when you think about that, go back again, you talk about players needing to fit your philosophy. When you go back and you look at Charlie Weiss and Dan Henning's offense, which is what we ran in, uh, in New York at the Jets, which is what we ran when we got to the Patriots, that slot receiver was a certain prototype, build and skill set. Those were players that were smaller, quicker than fast, but incredibly strong and incredibly tough. And we had a run of players. And in in uh, New York, it was Wayne Corbett. Yep. When we got to the Patriots, it was Troy Brown. After Troy Brown, it was it was Wes Welker. So that's the thing is we knew what we were looking for, and we got those players that fit the system, that fit the prototype that we were looking for. So Wes was perfect to come as Troy's career was you know descending and, and getting ready to end. Which is great because it like plays right into what you guys would say. I mean, I think I don't know if it was a sign in the building. I just remember it always sticks out in my head. We're not collecting talent. We're building a team, and that was one hundred percent. And I and I don't know if it was was it a sign. It was it was somewhere up. I it, it, it was something I, I know that I talked about often, and, and yeah. I, I, it was funny because they used to clown me in KC about it because <laughs> it made sense in New England, but I got clowned for it in Kansas City. And the saying was, you know, individuals make Pro Bowls, teams win championships. Yep. We are collect, you know, we are building a team, not collecting talent. Right, right. Okay, a couple last things before I get you out of here. I, I do wanna, I do wanna hit on the quarterback situation with you, um, and I wanna, you know, obviously, like you've, you know, got a personal relationship with the guy. He worked for you, um, and now he's, you know, in a tough situation. I think his first major, you know, like at least one of the first major things. Now, this is the J.J. Watt thing was the first major decision, but. Um, Nick Casario, new general manager with the Houston Texans, worked for you for I want to say eight years in New England, um, um, or not yeah. eight or nine, well, or right? with me. He worked with me, Bert. Right, worked I, with I, I you. Never... <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was actually people people forget this. He was actually Randy Moss's position coach, I believe, for a year there for that one season. Yeah, it was right, he, right. That was the year I think Ivan was sick. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Ivan so. Pierce. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna ask you what, like, if you were, if you put, if you could put yourself in Nick's shoes right now, how would you, how would you handle this um, situation? Because I, I, you know, I think we all know what Deshaun is as a player. How he handled it was a really weird year there. Um, if you were, if you were Nick, how would you, how would you handle Deshaun? Yeah, well, I'll preface it with this: is one, one thing is. Uh, any one of us that aren't in the building and aren't Nick Casario can only speculate on what we would do because I'll guarantee you this. There's a lot more information, good and bad, that Nick has that we have no idea. So we right. sit as outsiders, and, and, and I learned that because I remember when people used to kind of say, oh, Pioli should have done this or he should have done that. And and the thing was there were things that weren't public that people didn't know that there were conversations going on in circumstances and situations that no one knew about. That, be, you know, I, I need to put that out as, as a sure yep. <laughs> at the beginning. Um, but I would hope here's the thing. And, and knowing Nick like I do and, and, and Bert, I know you know him. He is one of the finest people mm -hmm. I've met in you know my 27 years in the league um, is fine a person as I met him. Good person, a smart person, hardworking and he's just a kind, good human being. And that being said, I think he he's going to give him his, you know give the player some space, give the player some time. The player 
you know, you know, Deshaun is 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 allegedly everything that I know from him. He's a terrific guy. Mm-hmm. Let a little time pass, and then try to sit down and talk to him, um, because he's too good of a player to to move on from now. You know, Deshaun may force his hand. Deshaun may hold out. He there's a lot of things that that can go on that that Nick can't control, and it can become more difficult. It can become more comfortable, uncomfortable. But Nick, Nick is going to have to make a decision of what he's going to do and, and what his price is if he's going to move on. I just can't imagine. It's so difficult to come across a great or potentially great quarterback because right now Deshaun is a very, very, very good quarterback on the cusp of being great. Yep. Um, some of that will have to do with you know how much he wins when he gets more talent around him. But to move on from something like that is difficult. But, you know, the other thing is on the flip side, Deshaun, hey, five months ago, Deshaun signed a deal. He made a commitment. He knew what the str- he knew who the owner was going to be. He knew what the leadership group was going to be. And he made a commitment. And he doesn't have a choice. And it's um, it's going to be difficult. But I think there needs to be some time. And then I think based on the fact that there's so many good human beings involved, um, David Cully, I don't know if you know David. David's terrific. I, yeah. I mean, he's. Did you um, cross paths so with him? Was he in? We never worked together. No, we never worked together. But I've known him for years because he's been on Andy's staff and, and right. my involvement with um, the the Bill Walsh Diversity Council. David mm-hmm. has always been a strong leader in, in that space and a thoughtful, strong leader. And uh, so I've gotten to know him. Um, and he actually, it's funny, he, you know, he played for Parcells. How funny is it? He played for Parcells at Vanderbilt a hundred <laughs> years ago. That's that, that's uh yeah. So I, I've known, I've known David for a while. He's a good man, but I, I think there's enough thoughtful people and enough good people where maybe everyone will come in and say, Hey, let's lay down our arms and have a conversation and see if this can actually work, which, you know, what's, uh, you know what's crazy about it too is like, I just think about this. Like I think, like all the quarterback movement and you can shoot this theory out of the sky if you want. But I think that there's sort of a Mahomes effect going on in the NFL where maybe like, you know, I don't know, like 10 years ago, maybe you felt like we can win the Super Bowl with the 10th best quarterback, the 12th best quarterback in the NFL. And now, I mean, I it almost feels like teams that have quarterbacks that maybe aren't elite are a little less comfortable about that than maybe they were five or 10 years ago. And they see maybe what Josh Allen could be, what Justin Herbert could be, what Trevor Lawrence could be. And I like, I just like look at Houston. I'm like, you've got that guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, like yeah. you've got that guy. You've got what everybody, like all of this, like uneasiness at, at that position, like all the potential, like unrest at that position now. And you've got one of the few that you know is going to give you a chance to compete with Mahomes for the next decade. And I don't know. I mean, this is just me personally, no, Scott, I, and I, but I think you move heaven I, and earth to keep him. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, I I agree. And, or just force what the rules are. And, yeah. and, and, you know, Bert, you say it's, it's interesting. You say that um, the Mahomes effect or whatever this is, I still think that you can win championships, you, that you don't have to have an elite quarterback to win because there's, there's quarterbacks that have won world championships that haven't had elite seasons. And we go back to this past um, Super Bowl. Brady had a great year. He yeah. really did. And in that final game, one of the things that showed through was, the defense may have won that championship. Right. You know what I mean? So I think it, it takes a combination. 
and the whole thing about the, the the quarterback thing is becoming very interesting and the changing of the quarterbacks and people are calling it the the carousel i see it more as um as musical chairs because there's always more players there's always going to be more players than there are seats and someone's going right. to get left out and end up having to take a backup job but as i watch that i think the other effect here that no one is talking about or the thing that's impacting it is there's now the the pressure to win and win now has always been solely on the head coaches. The industry has changed a little bit where there's an enormous pressure on head coaches and general managers now. And I see a lot, I see a lot more leaders in the game making short-term decisions in order to keep their jobs for the next contract than they are willing to be patient. And and that's not and and that's not an indictment on, on the people making those decisions on the general managers and the head coaches, it's an indictment on what the system is like that if you don't do something now and in a hurry, you're going to be out the door. So you better try to get one of those elite quarterbacks. And even if you have to sell your soul to get one. Yeah. And that's fascinating too. Cause it's just like, you know, I've always felt like the head coach is in charge of what's happening right now. And then the GM sort of in charge of like kind of keeping the five year plan in mind. Right. Like, so like, that's fair to say like, and in general, right. Like that, that's kind yeah. of the give and take there. And so if both guys are thinking with that short term thinking, like it could create issues down the line. So, yeah. Um, but Bert, I, I want to comment on that too, because I know there's a lot of my brethren in the front office and general manager space that, that get frustrated with me when I make this comment that I'm about to, to make is that, you know, head coaches aren't the only ones that should be held accountable. And there needs to be an accountability on the, the, the people in the general manager's seat and the people making the player, you know, the player personnel acquisitions. And that's why we look at the league now that there's so many head coaches that are demanding that power. They, they sit back and say, and again, I come from a coaching background and I, even though I've been a front office person for 20 something years, I have coaching background and I've always had close relationships with coaches. You know, the idea that, you know, it was simplified when if I'm going to cook the meal, I want to shop for the groceries too. Well, part of it is, well, if, if someone is sitting in, a, in another room is going to make decisions on players, but I'm going to be held accountable for how they are, they're not comfortable with that with that model. So it's, um, it's very, it's interesting to watch how it's affecting the league right now too. Yeah. And it's just so that, that relationship, I mean, me and you have talked about that for years, how important that relationship is and that, you know, paramount. yeah, absolutely. All right. Two last things real quick before we get you out of here. Um, number one, I know you've done like so much work on the diversity in the last few years. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this, um, you know, kind of coming out of this, uh, what do you think can be done now? Um, cause I, I think you've talked to some of the coaches that are frustrated the same way I have. Um, you know, and, and, and there was definitely progress made on the general manager side this year with Brad Holmes and with Terry Fontenot, Martin Mayhew, um, getting three of the seven openings on that side. Uh, I mean, having been somebody who's dove into this headlong the last couple of years, what do you think can be done to maybe take the next step mm. as far as creating opportunities? Yeah, it's it, it, this is a whole nother podcast, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. It, it's, it's, but uh, I'll say this: clearly, not enough is being done, and I can't get in the heads or fully understand the decision making process of, of of everybody. And it it's um, it's to say it's disappointing would be an understatement. 
And part of, you know, it, it's just, it's just not happening fairly and it's not happening fast enough. You know, there's, there's, there's some coaches that are, that are being given opportunities where if you look at other people on paper that don't look like them, that aren't getting opportunities, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, if I had the answer in a, in a very quick and short way, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? right. It, it, but, but it's, it's so complicated in certain ways, Bert, this is so complicated when in reality, it, it shouldn't be this complicated. Um, equity and equality uh, of human beings is just, I, I, again, I just come from a different place. Um, yeah. I don't get why this should be so difficult, but we, we, we've made it this way and, it, and it's being perpetuated and we keep saying we're going to fix it and we put programs and policies and things in place and then we don't adhere to them. And when we don't adhere to them, the league decides that they're not going to punish people for circumventing and or breaking breaking certain rules and then we worry about finding you know we're more worried about finding players who are wearing their socks the wrong way than we are enforcing um certain elements uh, of true humanity that are rules that are bigger it, it just it, it it's it's anyway it's 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 difficult for me to articulate without on um, this being a longer uh, uh, yeah. conversation. And we can definitely have that conversation down the line without question. And I, I think like, honestly, there's so many good names too. you know, guys like, you know, Todd Bowles, Byron left, which I, I think some younger guys too, like Gerard Mayo, like Larry foot that are going to wind up being really Pep good. Hamilton, head coaches. You know, why isn't Pep yeah. Hamilton? Even, you know, he, he's, he's Aaron developed Glenn, a couple of good players. Who, I believe Aaron was with you in New York, maybe, right? Like Aaron yeah. Glenn's yeah, another one who I York. think is going to wind up being a really good head coach down the line. So, um, D'Amico Ryan's is another one. So, all right. So, last things. This is a little bit more fun. Um, if I had asked you, if I had told you when you guys were on the podium at the Superdome in 2002 that Tom Brady would be winning um, a Super Bowl at 43 years old, and uh, and it would be a seventh, like what would you have said to me? Well, if you were going to pose the question, you know, that Tom, <laughs> this is only the first of Tom Brady's seven, I probably said, wow, we're going to have to sit, win seven of these in a row. Can we take one year off somewhere? <laughs> right. But to do it at 43, I would have, I, I would have I, I done, I'd have laughed at you. And, and again, because, and, and not as an, again, as an indictment on, on Tommy at all, but just the fact that players don't do this. Right. Yeah. And, and back in 2001, now, there's part of it is is clearly the greatness of Brady. Clearly, it's how he takes care of himself. Clearly, it's part good fortune that he's only had one significant injury in his career. Knock wood. I hope it remains that way. But you know, the other thing is he. We're now playing in a league. I think that this is going to become a bit of a trend. Not that everyone's going to be playing to 43, but we've now created rules, Bert, that that allow um, that protect quarterbacks in ways that they've never been protected. And right. this is another, uh, I digress here too. You look back at some old tape and some old film of what used to happen to quarterbacks after they threw the ball and or when they threw the ball, of course they didn't laugh last past their thirties, but now we have rules and things in place to protect them. Um, 
And again, I'm not saying that's why Tom Brady is doing this, but golly, no, I would have laughed at you, Bert. I, I would have laughed if you give me a little headlock. Yeah, come on. Well, I just know that like my left knee hurts when I walk up the stairs and I'm only 41. It's crazy. And so the idea of going out there and having like, you know, Frank Clark and Chris Jones running after me and like, I, yeah, Unreal. it's real. <laughs> yeah, it really is crazy. And I'm sure there were signs that like maybe back then like this guy could be the type of person who would do it, but the idea that he pulled it off is just I don't know. It's bananas. Yeah, um, it really he, is. Anyway, he's former Chiefs general manager, former Falcons and Patriots executive, a three-time world champion, five-time executive of the year. You can find him on CBS Sports and uh and nfl network and scott tell them where you can find him on social media too because you're a big social sure. media guy now well, too, well, too right uh, big. you're <laughs> mocking me now that's really funny I'm, I'm kind i'm trying to get big um so it's simply i'm only on twitter really and it's scott pioli 51 uh and that's it i don't i don't do the the facebook and you know, or, or you, you give us like an Insta face or whatever. I'm trying not to screw it up like Bill, but, uh, but uh, I don't do Instagram or, or yeah. So uh, uh, maybe you got to get on that Twitter. Maybe, yeah. yeah you're a media guy now. Maybe you got to get on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Hey, I, I took more of your time than I said I would. So I really appreciate no, it, Scott. We'll do it again you. soon. All right, thanks to Scott. That was fantastic. We're going to jump into our DraftKings segment with our man, Michael Fabiano from SI.com, the original author of the Stardom Sit'em column. What's happening, Fabs? Not much, dude. Uh, seems like there's a lot happening in your world, though. A lot of potential news that's going to be coming down yeah. here, maybe uh, involving certain quarterbacks. Which it's weird, man, Like, because it's, it's just it, like, yeah. I mean, I just feel like well, you know, you're sitting and waiting, and I, 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 like, I honestly think like Carson Wentz is probably the next one to move, but I mean, clearly the NFL, I think, has sort of told us where they stand on Carson Wentz, mm-hmm. and, um, and then I think after that, Sam Darnold, and I, I just, I, I, I guess off the top there, we can kind of ask you, like, what do you, like, like how do you, from a fantasy perspective, how do you look at Carson Wentz and Sam Darnold? Wentz this past season, he actually had some pretty good stat lines, but a lot of it was he was attempting to uh, eliminate deficits. He was actually having success on the ground as well as a runner, which is big. But you look at the interception totals, you know, they went way up. His completion percentage has dropped, what, three straight seasons now. And ultimately he was benched for Jalen Hurts. I feel like a change of scenery is probably the best case scenario for Wentz. For me, from a fantasy standpoint, I think Indianapolis would be good because, well, you've got the connection with Frank Reich. You've got a lot of good young talent there in Indianapolis as well. Michael Pittman Jr., Paris Campbell, of course, Jonathan Taylor in the backfield with Naheem Hines, and they have a pretty good offensive line there. I think that would be a pretty good fit from a fantasy standpoint. I know that you've come out and said that Chicago is the front runners at this point. And the Bears, I'm not sure what they have to offer because – their number one wide receiver is a free agent now in Robinson, yeah. right? Anthony Miller seemed to take a step back this past season. They like Darnell Mooney. You've got David Montgomery who played pretty well. Cole Komet. Right. Cole Komet's a guy who's who's up and coming, and we can actually talk about him uh, when we talk a little bit of uh, Dynasty. But I prefer Indianapolis. But anywhere oh, that he's going to be allowed. Oh, no, 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 Don't get me wrong. If I were him, like, I would 100%. I think that's sure. part of the holdup. Like, like he, he'd much rather go to Indianapolis, you know? Like, I, I think it's mm-hmm. 
you know, if you're looking at Chicago, it's it's not only all the things that you mentioned. It's also like, do I know who's going to be in charge in a year? Where in right. Indianapolis, like you know, Frank Reich and Chris Ballard are going nowhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so there's like all the like infrastructure in Indianapolis, clearly. But then on top of that, it's like also like these guys who are trading for me, like, are they going to be here? And if they're not there, then that by definition puts your future, you know, in the blender again yeah. a year yeah. from now. So mm-hmm. like I, I, you know, if I'm Carson Wentz, like I can understand, I guess, sort of pulling strings to try to make sure I like, like I can understand why Carson Wentz would want to try to pull strings to go to Indianapolis over Chicago. No question. And I think that's part of the reason why we, why, why, why why we've been waiting as long as we have. Right. And Ron Jaworski came out with the report earlier in the week that suggested that the Colts had offered what two seconds. Yeah. And the Eagles, they can't possibly think they're going to get two ones for Carson Wentz. No. I mean, maybe, maybe they do. I don't know, but that's insane. No, I, I, like I'm not like I haven't independently confirmed what Jaws reported. I'm pretty certain right now they're not getting a one. Although I think there's a well, I, I let me let me backtrack on that. They could get a one, but I think if they get a one, there will be strings attached. Like they'll be taking salary back. They'll be taking like 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 there will be pick going back something you know where right. and Howie Roseman is as creative as they come. So if he wants to come away with a one, there may be a way to do it. I just don't think it'll be without like a lot of strings attached, if that makes sense. No, yeah, totally. And and you also have the rumors out there floated about Zach Ertz maybe being on the move. And I would think his time in Philadelphia is over. He, they, you've seen Seattle come up in some some rumors and even the Colts, where maybe Wentz and Ertz are part of a deal that goes yeah. to Indianapolis. Which would be fun. It would be, man. Zach Ertz yeah. is going to be 30 years old when next season starts. It's I not know, like it's this crazy. guy is washed. It's so you funny know? because, well, it's so funny because like we look at Zach Ertz now and I always thought of him. I, I think for me, like perception wise is probably because Brent Selleck was always there, was there for those years. Yeah. Like you'd always seen like Ertz is like the young up and coming tight end. Mm-hmm. And then you turn around and he's 30 and it's like, holy crap. Like had that yeah. happen. He's yeah, definitely one of those guys that made me, makes me feel old. Cause I still, it's like hard for me to break the idea of him being like a young up and comer. So, um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I know you got a couple things on the site this week that we want to highlight. Yep. So let's get, let's get into that. Um, one is the dynasty rankings, which is really interesting. So kind of explain to me like how that's different and then give me kind of a, uh, give me a feel for what people will find on your list. Dynasty leagues are as close to actually having control of an entire NFL franchise as you'll get in the fantasy football world Mm -hmm. because there is only a rookie draft. If you have a startup, it's a massive draft. You're going to have 24 roster spots. You're going to have, it's going to be like an NFL roster. Obviously you're not going, uh, you know, past 50 of course, but you're going to probably be in that, in that twenties range in terms of the roster spot. You don't redraft Mm -hmm. every year. You keep the roster that you have, and you only do rookie-only drafts. There are some leagues out there where you do free agent drafts as well, guys who are on the waiver wire. Uh, I don't do that in my leagues. I'm basically just doing all the rookies. And your team is your team. And every single year, you're trying to build up your team. You decide whether or not your team's a contender. Do you want to maybe make trades for draft picks or players because you're building for the future? And in Dynasty, age is more important than it is in redrafts. Right. Like we don't look at Aaron Rodgers and say, oh, man, he's 37 years old. 
I'm not drafting him. No, he's Aaron Rodgers. But in Dynasty, if you're doing a startup, Aaron Rodgers is not nearly as attractive as he would be otherwise because how many more years does he have? Two, three more years? Right. Uh, you, you're going to be looking at younger quarterbacks. Like Aaron Rodgers, if you're doing a startup and you've got Trevor Lawrence or Aaron Rodgers in a Dynasty League, in redrafts, Rodgers is going ahead of Trevor Lawrence in almost every single draft. In Dynasty, Lawrence is going ahead of Rodgers in every single draft. Yeah. So it's it's more about building for the future and making sure you have your finger on the pulse of, of these young players coming into the league. So what's in your rankings then? It is a top 200 and it is quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends. We don't deal with kickers in the dynasty rankings, of course, uh, even though I do love kickers and it's all basically based off of a mix of value, potential value and age. So I'll yep. give you an example. Clyde Edwards Hilaire is coming off a disappointing season. Yeah. Over the first six games, he was pretty good. And then they brought in Le'Veon Bell. Clyde Edwards Hilaire is my 15th player yep. right now in my dynasty rankings. He's 22 years old and plays in a really good offense. And they've got a great quarterback that's going to be for a long time. I don't see any Reed going anywhere. That offense has always been very running back friendly from a fantasy perspective. And you're not just drafting Edwards Hilaire for 2021. You're drafting him for the future. So that's that's a, probably a, a good example of of the differences. Like you wouldn't see Clyde Edwards-Hilaire ranked 15th right now in a traditional redraft league. He's yeah. probably a third round pick at this point. But in Dynasty, he's a second round pick and he's got a whole heck of a lot of value because he's young and he plays in one of the, if not the most explosive offenses in the National Football League. Yeah. And you don't need to tell me about Clyde because Clyde was my first round pick. And uh, I remember we've we've been over this. We've been over this. So I like again, like that's my blind spot. Everybody who listens to this show knows that I I love the NFL draft and I get excited about rookies and Mm -hmm. I always over. I like I every year you probably look back and if there's some way of looking back my past rosters, there's always some rookie that I just love to watch in college Mm -hmm. and I just like it would be fun to follow him all year. So I draft him and usually way too high. All right. The other thing before we get you out of here, your man crush, um, because we didn't do this for Valentine's Day, I don't think. So Mm -hmm. your man crush story, who, who, uh, who, who, who are you crushing on? And it's almost all second year players. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sticking with the, I want to go after these, these young studs, that theme. Uh, once Jalen Hurts is named the starting quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles, he could be a top 12 quarterback. He could be a top 10 quarterback. I know he's got some wow. deficiencies. He is not, he's not going to come into the, and, and be, you know, Andrew Luck, let's put it that way, uh, as a passer. But it's just the threat of running the football as a quarterback is huge. Like, I can't yep. understate, I, I can't overstate that enough. Like Tim Tebow was a good fantasy quarterback and yep. he couldn't throw the ball for a lick. I mean, I remember starting Terrell Pryor a few times with the Raiders as a quarterback because he could run with the football and Jalen hurts. Again, he's got some deficiencies as a passer, but those are things he can work on. Right. And it's the, he averaged almost 80 rushing yards a game in the three games he started and finished for the Eagles. So he's, he's a guy that I'm, I'm crushing on JK Dobbins, Cam Akers, Deandre Swift, uh, really love all three of those a guys. Sneaky, sneaky, good running back class last year. It was. Yeah. yeah. And you know, what's funny. James Robinson wasn't even drafted. Right. And he was the best of all of them outside of John and Taylor. Right. Right. And uh, Robinson missed the last couple of games. So Dobbins with no Mark Ingram, 
Cam Akers, I would assume the Rams would probably part ways with Malcolm Brown, who's a free agent. And DeAndre Swift is in a great situation with Anthony Lynn as the OC and Deuce Staley now as the running backs coach. And we've already heard rumblings that they're going to give him more of a featured role next season, which is huge. So Swift is a breakout candidate. I like A.J. Dillon, too. That would require a divorce from the Packers in terms of uh, Aaron Jones. Which is possible. Which is very possible, right? Right. With that cap situation, wouldn't surprise me at all. So if Dillon ends up being the guy... And they may bring back Jamal Williams, who's also a free agent. I don't know that Dylan would be a true featured back like Saquon, but I do feel like he'd be an early down guy. He'd certainly be the goal line guy. And in that offense, you're not going to have to worry about teams stacking the line of scrimmage because Aaron Rodgers will just absolutely crush you. So Dylan, in a best case scenario, uh, is got RB2 value. And then at wide receiver, CeeDee Lamb was on pace in the five games that Dak Prescott started to finish with just as many fantasy points as Justin Jefferson in his rookie campaign. Dak will be back, we hope, I would expect, especially as a Cowboys fan. CeeDee Lamb could be and likely will be drafted ahead of Amari Cooper in a lot of leagues next season. I also love T. Higgins. He didn't have a great finish. He was 28th in fantasy points as a rookie, which is, you know, ho-hum. But, I mean, he had 20-plus points three times. A.J. Green won't be there. And assuming the Bengals don't do something stupid, and draft a wide receiver with that fifth overall pick. <laughs> they need to go after offensive line. They need to make sure that they secure that line for Joe Burrow. T. Higgins could end up being a top 15 wide receiver next season. Brandon Ayuk is also a guy that I like a lot. And then Curtis Samuel, because I'd like to see him go to a team that would make him a number two, maybe Washington. Washington. And then we like, talked about yeah. Zach Ertz leaving Philadelphia in all likelihood via trade, uh, Dallas Goddard. And yeah. Goddard has never really had a chance to shine for an entire season as the number one guy. Uh, the Eagles run a lot of 12, at least they did last year, but completely different offense now. They ran it 33.5% of the time last year. Nick Sirianni ran it just 19% of the time with the Colts as the OC. So Goddard could play a bigger role in that offense. Yeah, and it's interesting too because you bring up some of the names and then some pop out to me. Like I was thinking of Zach Moss in Buffalo, like a potential like guy who could emerge as a second-year guy. Michael Pittman with the Colts I think is sort yeah. of like yep. sneaky intriguing too. You know, like he's like somebody who – I think, like, depending on who plays quarterback there, could wind up being another breakout candidate mm-hmm. um, as well. So, um, so yeah, things quiet for you now, Babs? Or no, I'm still, I'm still putting out content. I'm still doing videos. Uh, we, we probably do three, four videos a week. We're going to yep. be doing some videos that are based on the dynasty rankings here with my pal Bill Enright. We'll be doing that yep. this week. Uh, I'm also going to be doing another mock draft, and then. Soon, I'll be getting into looking at the rookie quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end positions and kind of what fantasy fans need to know and who they need to be mm-hmm. keeping tabs on. So we're talking about like Trevor Lawrence, Travis Etienne, Devontae right, Smith. Exactly, yeah. Yes, exactly. For Which is folks, exciting too, to think about that stuff. Yeah. Because there's no combine. Right. So we're, we're basically, we've gone through, I have my top 20 free agents up there. Free yeah. agency is going to be the big the next big part of the the NFL schedule, sure. and that that'll be coming up next month, of course. But it's also, you know, it's it's that time where we're talking about rookies. We're seeing mock drafts from you know our guy Daniel Jeremiah and and Todd yep. McShay and and Kuiper and everybody. And so it's it's getting to that time of the year. And I think 
we're seeing even more of that now because we aren't going to have a combine. So people yeah. are going to be wanting that information even more and more. Just really sucks. There's not a combine because it's sort of like the kickoff to the off season. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and it just yep. it, it blows that we don't have that. Anyway, he is Michael Fabiano, SI.com, the original author of the Startup Sitem column. Uh, always appreciate you coming out. We'll talk to you next week. All right, my man. Take care. All right. Thanks to Fabs. Thanks to Scott. We're going to wrap up the show this week like we always do with the six-pack. You guys know how that works. Every Tuesday, I put the call out for questions on Twitter. I pick six. If I pick yours, then you get an answer here on the podcast and you get a like on Twitter. That means I hit that little heart there. So we're going to start with question number one. This is from Jax. That's at J underscore X. Do you believe the Lions draft a quarterback this year or give, give Jared Goff a one-year tryout to see if he is still a franchise quarterback? Jax, I think that all depends on what they think of this year's quarterbacks. And I know that sounds like a cop-out and, you know, whoa, does this quarterback make it to them? Does that quarterback make it to them? I just think that's the truth. Like, you know, if you if you look at this year's quarterback class, I think you got four guys that are seen generally as worthy of going in the top 10. That's Trevor Lawrence, who will not be available to you. It's Justin Fields, it's Zach Wilson, and it's and it's Trey Lance. And additionally, you look next year, and you know you see like a Keaton Slovis, you see a, a JT Daniels, but it doesn't look like you're going to have the same level of quarterback. Now that can all change, but it doesn't look right now like you're ha- going to have the same level of quarterback next year. So I don't think if you're drafting where the Lions are drafting, seventh overall you can afford not to take a very, very hard look at this year's quarterbacks. You can afford not to at least give yourself the chance to go through all of the process with each of these guys and consider, seriously consider drafting one of them. Because if there's not another one like this available next year, then are you looking at two years from now? And at that point, you know, you would hope that Dan Campbell and Brad Holmes had built a team that was good enough that it wouldn't be in position to draft one. And so, I don't know. The way I look at this, I think they have to look at it. So I I know it sounds like a cop-out, but I think that they give all of these, they absolutely positively look at the three guys that are likely to get to 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 them or to to, to be in play for them in Wilson, Fields, and Lance. It doesn't mean they're going to get to them, but it doesn't mean if you wanted to trade up, maybe one of them slips. There's there's a likelihood that you're going to have a chance at at, at one or more of them, um, whatever paths you have to take to get there. Um, I think you have to do it. I think you absolutely have to do it. And so, you know, does it mean you're throwing multiple darts at the dartboard? Yeah, you know, because then you'd have Goff and a rookie on the on the on the roster. But you know what? If you wind up getting it right down the line, it won't matter how you got there. If it winds up being Goff and the rookie pushed him, great. You know, then you'll be able to get some value in a trade for the rookie. If it winds up being the rookie and he needs to sit for a little bit and Jared Goff is the placeholder, well, that's great too. If Jared Goff winds up being the guy. I mean, like, like I said, like, I, I don't think that there's a bad result here if you do at least do all of the work on the quarterbacks. And so um, I would say very much you look at the idea of drafting a quarterback seventh overall doesn't mean you necessarily do it. Um, I think that all depends on whether or not one of them falls to you if you have an opportunity to trade up for one of them, if you truly fall in love with the one of them. Um, but I certainly think you have to look at it. Question number two, this is from Tim. It's at the 
Giants, good yet. Uh, who's a player in the draft that a lot of people are high on that executives aren't? So I would tell you the one that kind of popped to mind when I read this question was Kyle Trask, the Florida quarterback, who I think a lot of the executives in the NFL view as being sort of average physically and maybe more of a day two or day three prospect than a day one prospect. So that would be the first name that sort of popped into my head when I saw this question. The other name that um, you kind of, I think, was on my radar here too was Gregory Russo, the defensive end from Miami, who I think physically is a top 10 pick, and I've put him in my top 10, but could wind up, I don't think he'll slide out of the first round, but could wind up sliding like maybe towards the 20th pick, you know, and, and he may be available at 18, 19, or 20. Um, you know, so those would be the two players that sort of jump to mind. And then the other one that I'd have on my radar too is Mac Jones, who just doesn't have elite traits. So he could go in the first round, but I'm not positive that he will. Question number three from Kevin Pickett. That's at K pick 38 Patriots quarter starting quarterback will be, let's say Marcus Mariota. How about that? Marcus Mariota. Um, I just think that they're going to find a guy that they don't have to go in with both feet on that they can kind of say, this guy can be a placeholder for two years, three years for us, and maybe even a little bit more. Um, I think Mariota makes all the sense in the world. He's affordable when you look at what he costs versus what some other quarterbacks would cost. Um, and I, you know, do I think he'd positively make it? No, but he was a second pick in the draft for a reason. The problem with him is going to be, can you play the style that would, would put him in the best position to succeed, which isn't that far off from the style they played with Cam last year. And if you do that, can he stay healthy? That's always been the catch-22 with him. You've got to play a certain way to get the most out of him, and he's had trouble staying healthy when you do play that way. And so that's you know sort of where I see it, and I think it's a worthy risk as long as you're backstopping it with maybe a rookie or another veteran um, type. And maybe that veteran type's Cam Newton. Who knows? Question number four from Ricker81. That's at D underscore Ricker81. How likely was J.J. Watt to be traded with his $17 million cap hit, or would the team trading for him need to extend him or reduce salary to make the trade work? I certainly think that the cap hit, um, the fact that it's like a lump sum with $17.5 million for 2021 um, was an issue as far as trading him. And that's why I don't think they were getting a day one or a day two pick. I think it would have been a day four pick. Um, going back for him. And I think the reason another team would do that would be because they didn't think they were going to get him if he were to hit the open market. And so the really interesting part about it to me, I, like, look, like the Texans can say what they want. And I, I, I totally think that they did right by the player here. This is what, what, what JJ want wanted. And I think when you're talking about, you know, a fifth or a sixth round pick versus like having, you know, an icon in your franchise leave on good terms. I can, I certainly think you have the guy leave on good terms. And again, like we said at the top of the show, the relationship building thing, this is actually a sign that maybe they do get it on some level. Um, you know, so like, like I think the interesting thing now is going to be seeing whether or not JJ Watt can recoup the money that he's going to lose here. $17.5 million in the free agent market this year ain't going to be easy to come by. Question number five from Landon Jockham. That's at Landon Jockham. How does how much does the addition of Nick Sirianni, the former Colts coach, as Eagles head coach have to do with anything? Or is this sorely, solely a Howie Roseman and Chris Ballard decision? I'd say it's mostly a Howie Roseman and Chris Ballard decision with 
uh, Carson Wentz, who I believe wants to go to Indianapolis, having a little bit of leverage in the situation in that he can say that he doesn't want to go to X, Y, or Z, and maybe a team would be a little less willing to pick up all of his money and give up draft capital to get him if he didn't want to go play for them. Um, I do think that Nick Sirianni's presence is sort of part of the whole picture, though, in that the Eagles have gone so far now in putting Carson Wentz's name out there, and they've done so much work in trying to trade him. And, you know, you look at who Nick Sirianni is coming in here as a first-year head coach who's in his 30s, and I just think at this point, with the with with Nick Sirianni in charge, I just don't think that you can double back now and try to put the genie back in the bottle and saddle Nick Sirianni with a very, I would say, awkward situation. Now, if it was Doug Peterson and he had all the years of experience there, maybe you could do it. If you were bringing in like a Marvin Lewis to be your head coach, somebody who'd done it before, maybe you could do it. I just don't think it's fair to do that to a guy who's you know going to be getting his feet wet and adjusting to being an NFL head coach. Question number six, final question for the week from Jeremy Fredericks. Hi, Albert. It's oh, By the way, it's at Fredericks JK. Hi, Albert. Which coaches do you think will be in the hottest seats at the start of the season? Thanks from Brooklyn. Um, I'll give you three that I think are probably most on watch. It's Vic Fangio in Denver because – He's being inherited by a new general manager in George Payton, and we've seen how these have gone in the past. So I think Vic Fangio very much is under evaluation in 2021. Matt Nagy in Chicago, that one's obvious. They've gone in the wrong direction the last couple of years. I still really like Matt Nagy as a head coach. Um, you know, They have made the playoffs in two of his three years. They're top 10 in wins over the last three years. So I think there's a lot to like with Matt Nagy, and I really think he's a quality head coach in the NFL. But the noise around him is tough right now, and it might be tough for him to hang on to his job, especially because of the way the contract sets up, um, if they weren't to take a very serious step forward this year from where they were last year. And then Mike McCarthy in Dallas, I think, is the other one. The Joneses have actually been really patient in the past with their coaches, but their roster is in such a win-now spot. Um, if it doesn't work with McCarthy this year, I don't know that they can afford to go forward with him. And then I think three guys that just – like I think really need to take a step forward in 2021. Um, and I, I feel almost bad putting Cliff Kingsbury on this list, but um, you know, with the decisions that are going to have to come on, on Kyler Murray and some other players in the roster after this year, I think Cliff could use a, a playoff trip and not go playoff list in his last, in his first three years as an NFL head coach. Um, which is sort of like, you know, I know because they were in such a bad spot from a roster standpoint when he came in, um, you know, like, like, is that, I don't know, like harsh maybe, but it's tough for anybody to survive going their first three years without making the playoffs. Um, John Gruden's another one where, you know, they sort of went through a rebuild there and now he's going into year four. I think, you know, he would be well-served to make the playoffs. And then Zach Taylor, I think with Joe Burrow coming back needs to take a step forward in year three as well. So there are six names for you. I think Fangio, Nagy, and McCarthy are three that really have a lot to kind of show this year. And then Cliff Gruden and, and Taylor are three that I think could really use a strong, you know, in some cases, third year for Taylor and Cliff third year and for Gruden fourth year. Appreciate you guys coming out. Um, we got a lot of fun stuff coming for you over the next few months. I love the NFL offseason. I love, of course, the season itself, too, but I love the NFL offseason, and this one should bring more intrigue than maybe any we've ever seen. And so we're excited to cover that for you. We want your feedback on how we can help you guys 
get through this off season and give you guys the best content while we go through the off season. So I want all of your suggestions, any way you think we can make the show better. You guys know where to get me um, on my social media at Albert Breer on Twitter at Albert R Breer on Facebook at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram. And you can get to us on our iTunes page, go there, leave a rating, a review that helps people find our show. And remember to listen to all the MMQB podcasts, my podcast, the Albert Breer show, um, Jenny and Connor's podcast, the Weekside side podcast. And of course the MMQB podcast, um, which has both Gary's Monday morning podcast and the gambling show. We're on three separate feeds now, so make sure to bang that subscribe button on all three of those, the Albert Breer Show, the Week Side Podcast, and the MMQB Podcast. You can find all of us on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows, we are there. Same time next week, we'll talk to you guys then. Bye.